I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Our goal is to provide young couples with the resources they need to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. We are so glad that you're here. Let's get to the lesson. Whose voice can calm any wave, Jesus? Okay, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We only have a couple of weeks left in our, our uh, study in the book of Ephesians. If you've been keeping track, we're at about week uh, 15 today, 15th lesson. I know that that's a long time to be in a passage, but one of the things that we've been committed to in our class is um, going as deep as we can in a passage of Scripture because we, wanna, we want to not just cover topically what God's Word says about things, but we want to understand the depth of it. And part of uh, the challenges of starting a life together is that a lot of times we, uh, we lack the, the necessary tools and skills to be able to do that. And so the reason why we've, we've put our class together with this format is because we want to go as deep as we can uh, in Scripture so that not only do we have a palette for deep truth, but also we feel equipped, you feel equipped, as you are talking with each other, as you're figuring out what your life should look like as a couple, um, to have the tools to be able to do that. So um, we've got two more weeks in Ephesians, and then we're going to spend some time talking about parenting with uh, uh, Pastor Nick and Kim Dyer. Um, but let's get into it. Uh, the first, uh, so if you remember, Paul is using a series of examples here to illustrate the submission piece of the Christian life. He started off by talking about how we should be united to one another and we should be uh, submissive to one another. He talks about that in chapter 4. And putting on the new man, the first part of chapter 5, he says, uh, be imitators of God, take off the old flesh and, and put on the new spirit. And then he goes through a series of examples and he talks about the submission that, that um, should be uh, a core part of the family. So wives submit to husbands, husbands submit to Christ, Husbands love their wives like Christ loved the church. And so what we're going to look at this morning is the relationship between children and their parents and between employees and their employers. Um, I had an older gentleman tell me a couple of years ago, he had raised two sons, and he told me something that changed my, my perspective about parenting. He said, God has not called us to raise good kids. God has called us to raise godly adults. That means that uh, when you think about parenting or whatever you're thinking about discipleship in general. Remember, we've talked about how parenting is not about just reproducing uh, children. We're not talking about just biological reproduction. We're talking about making disciples. So think about the lifespan of a child, right? When they're, when they're young and they're defenseless, we have very strict boundaries about their life. You can't eat this. You can't do this. this that we we uh, protect them from outside influences and also from their own ignorance. Right? If I let a three-year-old run around with a steak knife, uh, they're going to get hurt right? because they don't understand the danger that they're in. Um, but gradually over time, what's going to happen is they become more and more mature. And the idea is, are, the idea is that boundaries will slowly begin to um, disappear. Because the idea is not for us to protect our children in a bubble, but to create in them the capacity for strength to be able to face the issues of their life, right? We've heard, we've heard so many stories about so many people who grow up in fundamentalist, very strict homes that go out into the world and they have not been equipped with the strength to be able to handle the things that are out there because their parents thought, oh, if I just shield them from all the things in the world, then they're going to be okay. But the challenge is they get out there and they're like, oh my gosh, what do I do with all this fun stuff, right? We've got sex and we've got alcohol and we've got relationships and we've got all kinds of things. So 
Remember that, that God's not called us to raise good kids. He's called us to raise godly adults. Um, the, goal, the goal of parenting is to cultivate a child's perspective about God. So here's something that is really important for you to understand. How you treat your child is going to teach them how to see God. Because the model that God has given us in, in, in the family is that we are teaching them how to think about authority. And that's true about their relationship with you directly as their parent. That's true with their relationship with authority structures like the law and like government uh, and with teachers and other authority figures in their life. But most importantly, it teaches them how to see the authority of God. So when you think about how you should parent your child, think about how God parents you. Um, ultimately, they, their life should culminate, their, their upbringing should culminate in them becoming a spiritually self-feeding and independent adult who's also able to contribute to the life of a local church, right? We don't want to raise good kids. We want to raise godly adults. And we do this in a number of ways. The first is that um, children learn how... Uh, so they learn how to have, how to see authority by how we model our own healthy relationship with God through our own testimony. Children don't learn by what we say. Children learn by how we live. Okay, so you can say all the things that are right. You can think that you're doing all the things right. But when it comes down to it, the most contagious thing that you can do to teach your child is to have a godly life yourself. Um, I realize that now on the back end, now that we have teenagers, one of the things that unintentionally that, that, I, that we did when uh, Emma was born and then Ava came uh, two years after was um, having a child in the house is exhausting and you can never seem to have any time to yourself. And so out of necessity, out of just sheer um, determination, I said, I've got to get up before anybody else gets up because I don't, I, I'm auditory and I'm kinetic and I cannot have any activity around me. I can't read at all. So like taking a test in school, uh, the clock is ticking. I can, I, it's like, might as well be doing a, a tap dance with a top hat and a cane on the wall, right? Super distracting. So I got up early. I made a commitment when Emma was little bitty to get up at five o'clock in the morning. And so I started to do that. And now I've done that for almost 17 years now. And, um, it's still difficult to do even today. But one of the unintended consequences, though, is that Emma usually would be the first riser. And so our mornings were pretty cool because I would be in my chair in our living room doing my quiet time. I'd hear the door open, little feet come out, you know, as she emerges from the shadows, her hair's all a mess, right? And can't breathe out of her, her nose because her nose is all full of snot. And so she's mouth breathing. Um, and her thing was, Daddy, I want chocolate milk. She called it chocolate milk. I want chocolate milk and chocolate toast. That was what we fed our kids is what it was. <laughs> Nutella toast and chocolate milk. That's what we did. Um, and so uh, what I realized is that um, I could turn on a show for her and she could be entertained while I finished my quiet time or I could begin to model for her. Okay, yeah, I'm glad you're here. Come sit by me. Here's your toast. Here's your chocolate milk. Just sit by me while I read. You don't have to do anything. Maybe get her a book so she can look at something, but we don't turn on any electronics. And one of the things that I realized as she got into the fifth and sixth grade um, is that she, all of those mornings sitting by me, she understood, oh, this is, this is our quiet time. This is, this is the time that we just sit and we just kind of listen. And when she became a preteen, when she went through ramp, um, we got them a little kid's journal. You know, they have the little things they can write notes or draw pictures or whatever. 
And I told her, I said, when you finish this little plastic journal or whatever, we'll go to Mardell and we'll get you a real journal, like Daddy's journal, like a leather journal. And she was like, okay, some challenges on. So she began to, oh, I don't know what, what I'm doing. I'm, I know as I sit here and I read and I write down my observations. And then I still remember the day she came to me and she said, Daddy, I finished my journal. When can we go to the store? And that little $7, $8 leather journal from Barnes, from, from uh, Mardell was like the best thing ever for her. Like she was so excited because she got to pick it out. She got to pick out, oh, this, this, there's pink ones, there's blue ones, there's brown ones. Like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. But what I realized was that how I lived determined what she thought adulthood looked like, right? And it wasn't something that I set out and said, I'm going to be the most disciplined, most, most uh, godly parent ever. It was just the act of simple obedience. Because remember, discipleship is caught, not taught, right? So how we live is important. The second thing is that we teach our children about God by how we teach, how we discipline, and how we guide them into maturity. So how you approach their violations of, of uh, the family code or, or family boundaries, it's important. Not just what the rules are, but also how the rules are taken care of. So let's get into the text. That's a lot of intro, but let's get into the text. We're going to do the first nine verses, but, but before we get into, we'll do the first four. Um, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So that, it may, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, we're going to start with parents and ch- kids and parents. Um, so just like husbands and wives are given the responsibility to submit to God's design, so are children. And their obedience is rooted in honor. He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. Honor here means to affix a value to or to view something with an appropriate respect. It implies that children should value the role of their parents. And that means that our children are going to determine how they value us and how they value who we are as a person based on our own individual credibility. Right? If I am dismissive, if I am not present, if I, am, uh, if I don't care about their opinion or about what's happening in their life, I am modeling for them that God is all of those things. Okay, so he says, you're cultivating a view of honor. And the primary way that they do that, the way that they honor us, is by obedience, right? As a result, God honors children who submit to his design. And he gives them long life and favor. Uh, The original commitment from this comes from the law of Moses in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And the consequences of this, of not correcting a disrespectful child, is a poisoned worldview. In fact, according to the Mosaic Law, if a child was repeatedly um, obstinate and rebellious, they were commanded to be stoned and put to death because rebellion is contagious. And it wasn't because they wanted to keep a hard thumb on all of their children. It's because they understood that what, what one generation grows up with a bad view of authority, it permeates the culture to where we dismiss authority and we don't think that it's valuable. The implication here is that God has designed an authority structure for creation to thrive. There's a natural order. He says that this is the first commandment with a promise. Um, It reminds us that obedience to God's word, obedience to God's design, leads to prosperity. It leads to a right perspective. It leads to a healthy mind, a healthy spirit, a healthy body. If we are obedient to God's commandments, 
it affects the way that we live. It affects our quality of life. That's what, he, that's what his point is here. Uh, God wouldn't give us this commandment if it wasn't true. Um, I want you to know something else. He said, uh, he says at, in verse 3, he says, uh, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land. That's important because in the context of the original commandment, God's teaching his people how to actually live at what life should look like. Okay, so imagine this. The, the people of Israel have spent 400 years in, in slavery in Egypt. They have no national identity, none whatsoever. They have no idea what it means to actually live in a community, to be respectful, where boundaries should be. They're coming out of a pagan culture that's full of pagan worship with no understanding at all of who Yahweh is. All they know is there's, that there was a promise made to their great-grandfather Abraham that God was going to save them from Egypt. And so there's some remnants of, of national identity, but there's no law. There's no Bible, there's no scripture, all they have is this promise, right? So when God gives the book of Leviticus to the people of Israel, he's teaching them, here are the boundaries, this is, this is the design that I have for you, for you to live a fulfilled life. A lot of people read the book of Leviticus and it's like, oh, this is the worst, right? It's just a list of all the things, make sure that you don't do this on this day, make sure you do this on this day, make sure you, this is your, you don't, all these, all these boundaries. But what God was doing was he was taking an uneducated, redneck people with no idea about how to live, and he was giving them healthy boundaries for life. They were in their infancy in their relationship with him. God was teaching them about authority. So when we think about our rules, this abundant life that comes in the land, that's an important phrase because it teaches us that there is a long-term purpose. Um, on the subject of, cha of shaping our child's view of authority, um, it's true for their parents, it's true for government, and, and most importantly, it's true for God. The way that we express our authority to our children is going to cultivate their perspective about all kinds of authority. Now, in verse 4, there's a lot of stuff here. So he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Let's talk about provoking a child to anger. It means treating them disrespectfully. Some translations say that, that fathers should not exacerbate their children. And the reason why he, he points out fathers specifically is because the dad factor is a real thing. Ladies, you probably have noticed that the kids are absolute tyrants until your husband comes home. And it's like, who are you? What happened? Right? They, they, your husband walks in the door and all of a sudden you're like, I wish you could have seen him five minutes ago. Because they were little hellions. They're running around breaking things, not listening to me, and all of a sudden you show up and it's like, Daddy! And everything is fine again. So the reason why he brings up fathers is because dads, husbands, what you choose to, how you choose to live your life is going to determine the culture of your home. We, we know just on pure statistics that if you get the man, you get the family. It's just an established fact. So what this means is that fathers, you bear the primary role of leading your, leading your family dying to yourself, and living righteously. So that means that your influence can't be wasted because if you are dismissive or you undermine your wife's authority to your children, there are going to be generational consequences to that. You can't come home and say, well, you know how your mama is, or yeah, you know how your daddy is. You guys are a team, but understand that, that fathers, you play a very key role in this. And some guys, they don't understand the significance, and so they do this, they, they exacerbate their children or they, they provoke them to anger, in a couple of different ways. Some of the common ways that I've seen is one of them is, is treating their kids like they're pets for entertainment. They play with them, they tease them, they goof, they, they goof off with them, 
uh, to a point to where they might as well be playing with a dog. And then when the child gets overwhelmed because they think, oh, well, this is fun. We're just doing all this crazy stuff. And all of a sudden they do something that is outside of the boundaries. Dad comes down really hard and all of a sudden he goes from playful to angry and unjust. Treating our children like pets or like just for entertainment. We tease them. Um, you know, we've seen uh, children grow up without a, they, they, they grow without a sincere love and support for their parents. And they begin to think that their parents are untrustworthy. We've seen people, I'm sure you've seen people who they sit there and they poke their kids, either figuratively or metaphorically, to get a rise out of them, and they love to see them throw a fit, or they think it's funny, or they think it's amusing whenever their child's being rebellious, or their child's having trouble processing a situation. They're not displaying genuine care. And this is a way that we exacerbate our children. Respect is given when it's first modeled and received. Um, another way that, I see, that I've, I've seen uh, parents be disrespectful to their children and exacerbate them is through being helicopter parents. They never allow them to mature or grow emotionally. These are parents who are always hovering. They're always watching. They never let them make mistakes. Um, these kind, this kind of parents, uh, parenting is destructive because it prevents children from learning how to process danger. Right? Think about how the Lord parents us. Whenever we, whenever we get into a situation, or take the illustration of, of Adam even Eve, Eve in the garden. That God says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They walk up to the tree. They're going through the whole dialogue with the enemy. Does God jump in and save them because they're in danger? No. He lets them make a choice. But is God always present? Yes. He lets them make appropriate decisions so that they can learn how to process danger. We should think about our children in the same way. Um, potential result of helicopter parenting is that we either have domesticated children who never leave home, or when they become older, they rebel and they cut ties with their parents in adulthood. They don't see their parents as genuine Jesus chasers, as authentic authority, authority figures. They see them as something they need to cast off because they have not been stewarded well. Many parents are overprotective of their children because they're trying to insulate them from making poor decisions. But this oftentimes comes from a parent's own insecurities because I don't want my kid to do, make all the mistakes that I have and so I try to protect them from all the things that I've done. But as a result, we focus on preventing them from, from strengthening themselves. And as a result, our children are weak and they're not equipped to be able to face the world. Remember, our, we're not called to make good kids but to raise godly adults. Another way that we exacerbate our children is through unjust punishment. Um... And the, the challenge is that the majority of professing Christians who struggle with a habitual addiction are products of this type of an environment. Most people who have addictions to pornography, to alcohol, to food, to whatever it might be, um, they come from very strict, unjust homes. Growing up in, a, in that culture, especially in the homeschool world back in the late 80s and early 90s, this was an incredibly common thing. Something that I think is important, as I've studied God's Word, I see that God never issues judgment without instruction. Instruction is always a component of judgment, always. And um, so think about when, when, when God confronts Adam and Eve. Let's go back to the garden, right? He graciously seeks to help them understand what's happening before He issues His judgment, right? Our children should understand what's going on. And the, the, you probably, if you got busted when you were a kid, your, your parents would probably send you to their room for a little while or they'd, they'd make you take a break. 
The reason why that's important, number one, is so that you can cool down. But secondly, just like God does with us, He allows us to marinate in the consequences of our sin so that we can think about what we've done, so that we can understand the danger that we're in. When we issue judgment or we issue correction, whether it is with little children or with a, with a baby Christian, we need to have the same perspective of Jesus to where we let people work through their mistakes and then we issue consequences. He gave Adam and Eve latitude to have a choice to obey or not. And when they did disobey, he gently but firmly held them accountable. He wasn't quick to punish them or to rescue them from, the, from them before they ate the fruit. He was slow to anger and carefully confronted them with the purpose of revealing what had been done. The important thing when you're dealing with punishment or correction is not to focus on the why. Whys are justifications for anything. Why did you hit your sister? Why did you lie to me? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? I can come up with any reason why. The root problem is the sin. The sin is not the why. The sin is, revolves around the what. What did you do? I hit my sister. Okay, are you going to make that right? I don't care about the why. I don't care about the what. Because if we can, if we can fix the core issue, then we can move on. Because if we're just dealing with the why, we end up just dealing with symptoms, right? If you have a, if you have a sickness, if you have a, uh, for instance, if you've got a virus and you've got a stuffy nose and a headache and, and sinus infection, um, it's not just about relieving the symptoms. It's about fixing the core problem. There's something wrong inside that needs to be addressed. Parents frustrate their children when they create an environment that rejects the responsibility of pairing instruction with correction. Because I said so is not a godly parenting technique. I know that there comes a point to where you just say, this is what I said, and this is what we're going to do. But if your children know that if they, dis if they disobey you, that they're going to get a 20-minute instruction about what happened, they're going to be less likely to disobey you because they're just going to be like, just, will you just spank me now and get me out of this, this situation, right? Because I said so lacks the understanding. Even if your children aren't listening to you, even if you think that they're too small to listen to you or to understand you, that doesn't change. You can't just say, because I said so, we're going to do this. God doesn't do that with us, and we shouldn't do that with our little ones. And here's the other thing, too, is that um, children are a lot smarter than we give them credit for, a lot more intelligent than we give them credit for. I'll never forget, there was a time Emma was probably 18 months, maybe two years old, and she and I were going to Walmart together, the two of us. And um, we get out of the car. I've got her little seat cover thing on the, on the cart, put her in the cart, and we're, we were going into Walmart. And we, as we come through the first set of doors, she starts losing her, her business. Like she's just like screaming and acting out and big tantrum, whatever. And my mom used to do this to me all the time, and I picked this up from her, that she would get down into my, in my face, and she would say, Philip Andrew, look in my eyes. And she would grab my chin like this. She would hold me toward, you know, I'm doing this right here, you know, pulling my eyes away. But think, the Lord does the same thing to us. We get, in, we get into our mess, and He goes, look in my eyes. The eyes are the window to the soul, right? And very calmly, she would explain to me that we aren't going to do this. Here are the consequences. If you want to do this, if you want to continue to do this, we'll go to the car, and we'll get us bacon, and we'll go home. But if you don't want to, we'll go in the store and we'll have a great time. Your choice. And what was amazing is in that moment, I got down on Emma's level and I said, Emma Avery, look in my eyes. 
And of course, you know, she's all of a sudden daddy's paying attention to me. <gasps> wow. She wanted my attention. And I gave her the option. If you want to go to the car and get a spanking, we can do that and we can go home. Or if you want to go in the store with me, we can do that too. But we're not going to do this in public. This isn't the right thing to do. She's like two years old. And what was amazing is that when you know it, she flipped the switch and she stopped throwing her fit. Now, did that work every single time? No. But it taught me a valuable lesson that when my children are acting out, it means that they need me. They need my attention. This is very true, especially for men, for husbands. Your children, when they're acting out, most of the time they want your attention because they don't understand what's happening around them. And the safest thing to do, the best thing to do, is to give them attention. You're not pandering to them. You're not giving them what they want. You're giving them guidance. You're leading them. Um, every time that we correct our children, we have to get, we've been given the opportunity to instruct them in how to live. But if we punish them because of personal preferences and not biblical principles, we're going to build a false perspective about justice. Okay, so when you correct your children, don't just say, because I said so, because I don't like it, because you're annoying me when you're doing that. If it's something that they're doing out of ignorance or because they're just a child, then don't jump on them because of that. But give them some real, uh, honest instruction. Another thing that, that uh, we got some great uh, parenting advice from my grandmother uh, when we found out we were pregnant with Emma. Two fundamental things about discipline. One is punish rebellion and not childishness. If your child is being animated because they're little and they don't have fine motor skills and they're overwhelmed with sugar or they're something, they're, they're, they're having trouble processing an evening and they do something like knocking over their cup or they accidentally spill something or they're clumsy and they bump into something and something breaks, they're being a child. They're not being rebellious. Being a child. Punish rebellion, not childishness. Understand there's consequences to having children. We bought, in our own ignorance, we bought a leather sofa, a leather love seat, when we first got married. It was beautiful until we had children. <laughs> Emma found an ink pen one time, and she drew all over it. And then we had a dog tear the cushion off of it, right? But the thing is that she, she obviously, she knew you're not supposed to draw on everything, but she's a child. She doesn't understand, right? There's a difference between being childish and being rebellious. So if they're, if they're overwhelmed, they're in their high chair, right? They're, they're being crazy and food's going everywhere, right? They're being a child. But when you say, don't do that, and then they look at you, and they grab a handful, and they throw it down like this, that is not childishness. That is good old-fashioned sinful rebellion, right? How, much, how many times do we do that to the Lord? Don't do that. And then we just drop it over here, Right? And does he issue punishment? He does. But he does it always in the context of, of instruction. The other thing, so don't punish, uh, punish rebellion, not childishness. The other thing is never punish your child in anger. This is a hard one. I remember one time I, I gave Ava a spanking when I was angry with a wooden spoon with slots in it. And I left little red marks on her thigh. She was probably four, maybe three or four. And it is an incredibly humbling thing to have to apologize to your child. She needs to know, daddies don't do that. That was wrong. And I'm sorry. It was one of the most humiliating things in my life. But never punish your child in a position of anger. 
Because remember, God has called us to be scalpels and not cleavers, right? The difference between a surgeon and a butcher is that a butcher doesn't care. They're just lopping things off. They're not worried about relationship. They're not worried about healing. They just are just being efficient. But a surgeon is going to do the, the, the minimum amount of damage for the maximum amount of healing, right? The punishment has to fit the offense. So we've got to, we've got to whenever we do issue correction, we've got to understand that part of it is just giving, getting their attention. We used to call this the hard reset with, with Ava. She was our one. She would do the, she would do the time. She would do the time. Um, she did not care. Um, but we realized that when, when they would get out of control, we weren't, we weren't um, disciplining from a point of anger, but we were disciplining from a point of like, I've got to get control of the situation because you're not, you're not listening to me, right? And God does that with us. Um, James chapter uh, 1, 19 and 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Um, another way that, that is uh, important is dismissing or belittling our children. Um, one of the things that I realize is that children are hungry for training. Parents who dismiss their responsibility to actively participate in the problems that their children are trying to solve, they're missing a prime opportunity. Your children want to learn and grow. And so by participating in the things that, that they're going through, the things that they're trying to figure out, um, you're teaching them how to process um, things that they don't understand. So consider this. You have, uh, you might think, oh, well, my kid's problem is not a big deal, right? The, the wheel came off of their car, right? The bunny doesn't have her, head, her headband on or whatever the thing is, right? And you think in your mind, I am busy doing serious things. Why are you coming to me with this problem, right? We'll deal with this later. Consider who we go to to ask for help, right? We come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I need money for this thing. Lord, I need, I need this, I need that, I need all, I've got all these needs, right? But what is he in charge of? The entire universe, the cosmos, salvation of the entire world, working all things together for our good? We might as well be handing him a broken truck and say, Daddy, the wheel fell off. And yet, how does he deal with our anxiety and our needs? He's kind and he's gentle. And he takes those little bitty things to teach us that he is in control, that he is that we are safe, that, that he knows what's best for us. Does sometimes he, he make us wait to fix the broken truck? Yes, he does. But because he wants us to be in his presence. It's not about fixing the thing and getting rid of us. He wants us to be coming to him. That should be the same mindset as, um, as parents. So we're modeling how to, how to find solutions. And that's one of the important things about going to God's Word. And, he, and they say, Daddy, what do we do about this thing? Well, I don't know. Let's go see what God's Word says. And they begin to realize, oh, that's, that's how we solve our problems. That's how we fight our battles is we go to God's Word. And we, we are a student of God's Word. Daddy, how did you learn all this stuff? Mama, how did you learn all these verses? Because I'm a student of the Word. Because this is, this is what God's given us. And we model that for them. He says that we're supposed to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, or the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Vine uh, defines discipline as the Christian uh, discipline that regulates character. Uh, the old school word is chastening. Um, when you think about discipline, think about it from the, from the perspective that we are um, we're regulating things that have the potential for harm. We're protecting our kids from the things that are going to make them, that put them in danger. So our focus is not to, to keep them from danger always. Our focus is to increase their strength to where they can face it themselves. Right? So we want to 
We want to build them up. This is where instruction comes in. This word instruction literally means in Greek to put in the mind. It implies equipping our children with the knowledge of Scripture. Paul, when he writes his letter to Timothy, in the, in the second letter to Timothy, he encourages him. He says, I remember the faithfulness of your mother and your grandmother and how they were godly people and how they instilled in you from the beginning the knowledge of the Word of God. And that's when he says, all Scripture is given by God, profitable for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, so the man or woman of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What we do is we implant God's Word in our children's lives, and we're literally putting tools in their toolkit. So things that may not seem like they're a big deal, like Awana, or Sunday school, or vacation Bible school, or camp, or things like that, what we're doing is we're literally filling their toolbox. So these aren't things that are just negotiable. These are things that are real uh, assets for us. Um, how parents view their children will reflect their view of God. So these kids, they're learning how to see God by how we live and how we parent them. So when it comes to um, how we deal with them, if we are detached and we're not concerned about their lives, um, then that's going to teach them that that's what God's doing. Or that he's manipulative, or he's spiteful, or he's trying to he's trying to get us to do things that we don't want to do, and he's going to be resented and be seen as untrustworthy. Maybe these these are some things that ring true for you in your experience. Um, but if God is a good father and a self-sacrificing shepherd, then the parents have to realize that they are going to have to be the same way to have a healthy relationship with their children. I want to have a good relationship with my kids when they're grown. I don't want them to resent me. I don't want them to resent our way of life or the truth of God's Word. Many times what happens is that we approach parenting in ignorance. We approach developing people in ignorance. And we don't spend time to learn what it, what it looks like to be a self-feeder. And so we resort to things like, because I said so. Or because this is what I want to do. But we're not teaching them to trust our heart. And by extension, we're not teaching them to trust the Lord. I'm out of time. But um, these last couple of verses, let's do them real quickly. Uh, verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the integrity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, serving with a good with goodwill as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same to them, giving up threatening, knowing that both their master is you and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Real quickly, what he's talking about here is he is he's talking in our context uh, of employers and employees, and the overarching premise is this: that God is the master of all people, of all things. That means that whether you are a boss or whether you are an employee, your job is to recognize that you serve the same master. Okay, you may have an employer that you don't like, an employer that you don't respect, that you don't want to do what they want, um, but that doesn't change the mandate here because how we, how we chase Jesus and how we serve them is, gonna, is going to be a reflection on Him. Um, our work should be done as an act of worship for God to illustrate the gospel. Um, he says that we're supposed to be obedient to those who are ma our masters according to the flesh. Um, Believers should work as to Christ, is what he's talking about. The idea is that I serve my employer with respect and with honor because it's a reflection of my faith. 
not because I'm trying to get an, a raise, not because I'm trying to manipulate other people in the office. I am working. Every time I go to work, I am serving the Lord. The, the, the best example of this, honestly, is Joseph in Egypt. So think about this guy. He gets betrayed by his family, sold by his brothers into slavery. He's carried across, halfway across the world, serving in a strange environment, doesn't know the language, doesn't know what to do, and yet he applies himself to serve the Lord and not his master. What does God do? He gives him favor. He blesses him. He gives him opportunity. Now, does that always look like he's, he's cashing checks and doing all the things? He spent years in prison. And yet, his faithfulness, he showed up and worked no matter what his scenario was. So that means that whether it doesn't matter if you're a pastor, if you're a police officer, if you're flying airplanes, or whatever the case may be, if you are working as to the Lord, he is going to provide favor. And you know what's going to happen? Is that as God raises you up in your faithfulness and in your content of your character, guess who's going to pay attention? Your boss. Who's going to pay attention? Your colleagues. Who's going to pay attention? Your subordinates. All of these people are going to see what God is doing in your life, and they're going to be like, I don't know what that person has, but I want some of that. That's the premise of this, is that we serve our, our masters and we serve our slaves because we understand that God is the one who's the master of all. Um, at my ordination, Pastor Michael said this, and it has always stuck with me. He said, the single greatest tool that you have to leadership is the power of an exemplary life. And as we serve God faithfully, we will create influence in the lives of other people. Notice we don't have to do this with, through threatening and through trying to, to manipulate people, but understanding that God is the one who is the master of all things. So here's your question for the car. How are you cultivating the view of authority in your home and at work? How are you intentionally framing first your perspective about authority? And then how are you framing the perspective of authority for the people that watch you? This could be children, this could be colleagues, this could be your boss, this could be subordinates. How are you, in your mind, how are you learning about God's authority and then taking it intentionally on yourself to teach it through the way that you live? Who carries the power to save? If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.